Will Willimon, you may know that name, he's a bishop in the Birmingham area for United Methodist Church, uh, was the uh, Duke, uh, the uh, dean, excuse me, at Duke Divinity School for a number of years, tells this story from his early years as a pastor in Georgia. He says, one Saturday, my wife and I went to a funeral in a little country church, not of my denomination. I grew up in a big downtown church. I had never been to a funeral like this one. The casket was open. And the funeral consisted of a sermon by their preacher. The preacher pounded on the pulpit. And he looked over at the casket and he said, It's too late for Joe. He might have wanted to get his life together. He might have wanted to spend more time with his family. He might have wanted to do that. But he's dead now. It's too late for him, but it's not too late for you. There is still time for you. You can still decide. You are still alive. It's not too late for you. Today is the day of decision. Then the preacher told how a Greyhound bus had run into a funeral procession once on the way to a cemetery and that that could happen today. He said, you should decide today. Today is the day to get your life together. Too late for old Joe, but it's not too late for you. Willowon says, I was so angry at that preacher. On the way home, I told my wife, have you ever seen anything as manipulative and insensitive? That poor family, it was disgusting. She said, I'd never heard anything like that. It was manipulative. It was disgusting. It was insensitive. Worst of all, It was all so true. (laughs) It is one of the hardest tasks that I face as a pastor doing a funeral. There simply is no easy way to talk about death. And there is just no easy way to encourage those who are dealing with the loss of a loved one. And, and, And the truth is, that every time I do a funeral, I am reminded of the harsh reality of death, the brevity of life, and the importance of being prepared for death. St. Isaac, the Syrian, 7th century mystic, said it this way, prepare your heart for your departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. Now that is a truth that needs to be spoken at every funeral. Granted, St. Isaac said it a whole lot more gently and delicately than the Georgia preacher, but I'll be honest with you. I understand his passion. Because once death has arrived, it is too late for any commitments to be made to Christ for the one that death has claimed. And that causes such a desire to, to well up within me, to speak the truth about, about that certainty. People will face death. We are all mortal. You know, and as challenging as a funeral service is, there is joy. And, and, and that's the focus upon Jesus. His death His resurrection that offers hope in the face of of certain death for absolutely 
everyone. That line in the old hymn that we sang this morning, when the, when the death dew lies coldly on my brow. That's happening to all of us, folks. 100% human mortality rate. None of us will escape. And in this Lenten season, we've been listening to Jesus' words from the cross. Words that have spoken both hope and challenge to us as his followers. But as we continue to focus in upon the words that he spoke, please do not lose sight of the work that he did and accomplished for us on that cross. The reason that Jesus hung on that cross and the reason that Jesus died there, he gave his life for our salvation. Our freedom from the ravages and the lies of the sin nature, our freedom from separation from God, not only in this life, but for all of eternity, his death for our life, both now and for eternity. So that's where our hope and our confidence lies in the certainty of death. Whoo! That was an exciting comment. Our hope lies in Jesus in the certain face of death. Thank you for waking up at least for that one line. All right, as we hear his final words this morning from the cross, the fifth final words, let's not forget what was ultimately happening there. So we've heard four. So far, first, Jesus speaking to his Father and for those who were crucifying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Second, words spoken to the criminal that was crucified next to him, I tell you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Yeah. To his mother, the third words, and to a disciple standing nearby, woman, here's your son, and to the disciple, Here is your mother. And last week, we heard Jesus address his father for the second time, but he doesn't address him with that familiar title. Instead, we heard him cry out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we learned that the weight of the sin nature of all humanity was placed upon him by the Father. He experienced a fracture in the intimate relationship that he had known with his father. And for the first time and the last time, there was a separation between Jesus and his father. Remember those amazing words of Paul to the Corinthians. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Boy, hang on to that truth. It is that truth. It is the weight of our sinfulness that led to the Son's cry of forsakenness. May we never, ever minimize the cost that was paid for our salvation on that cross. Never, ever. And so this morning, we want to consider together the, the fifth words or the fifth statement that was made by Jesus as he hung on the cross from, from John's gospel. Let's, so let's stand together and let's read these words, shall we? <clears throat> from John 19, 
together. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. Familiar words, no doubt, for many of us. You know, and it, when, I, when I first read those words, I am thirsty, thinking of them in, in light of this series and, and where we have been, in view of the other statements that, that Jesus made, I, honestly, I, I have to admit, it, it struck me as a little bit odd that these words are here. Of course, he's thirsty. And then the light began to glimmer in my brain very, very slowly at first because that's the way the light in my brain normally works. You know, we're not talking spotlight here. We're talking nightlight, you know, (laughs) dim little candle, that kind of an intensity. And then by God's grace and his patience uh, and the work of the Spirit, some things begin to glow a little more brightly and I begin to see things a little bit more clearly. Listen again to how John records it. He says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished, and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now another translation of that, just a slight difference, could be later, knowing that everything was now completed, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Let me offer you a couple of of observations about this. First of all, first of all, his thirst is an important reminder to us. Important reminder, and once again, we've, we've had these before, of the humanity of Jesus Important reminder of the humanity of Jesus. On that cross hangs the one who is the mystery of the incarnation. 100% God and 100% human. In one moment, he is promising his presence in paradise with the criminal crucified next to him. Humans cannot make a promise like that. And then, this morning, he is thirsty. God does not get thirsty. He is fully God, and he's fully human. And the interplay of divinity and humanity is seen visibly on the cross. And frankly, I I think it's the fully human part of the crucifixion that that we don't want to forget. And I I know this seems 
obvious, but, but I think it's important because we have a tendency to minimize the pain and the suffering. The pain and the suffering is hard. And there's, there's almost that defense mechanism within us that, that wants to kind of dull it down. You remember when Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, came out back in 2004? Some of the most vocal criticism of that movie came from church-going people. They claimed that it was far too violent. That it was far too brutal. In other words... It was far too real. We must, my friends, we must face and experience as best we can the fullness of the bloody, brutal, savage, horrific reality of the crucifixion that happened to an innocent fully human being for our sakes. Otherwise, if, if, we, if we don't, even if we don't mean to dull it down, we do, and, and what ends up happening is we sanitize it and we minimize the desperate condition of human depravity. Spurgeon said it this way, We must not be a people who subscribe to the lax theology which teaches that the Lord Jesus did something or other which in some way or other is in some degree or other connected with the salvation of humanity. We need to be specific. We need to face the facts. We need to deal with the pain and the reality of what Jesus did experienced can you think of a time in your life when you were thirsty I mean really really thirsty thirsty to the point that you began to wonder if you were gonna make it perhaps you were somewhere where there was no fresh water Ever been in a place where you were desperate enough to drink water that you were pretty sure you shouldn't be drinking? I think we've all had experiences, something like that. Jesus said, I am thirsty. Don't let those, don't let those three rather brief words fool you. I don't think this was a little thirst. I think this was a raging thirst. But the truth is, Jesus was so near death, there was so little life left in his body at that point, he had very little strength to verbalize it. But at this point in time, more than 12 hours has passed since Jesus was arrested. And following his arrest came the trials, came multiple beatings, came the flogging, came the carrying of his own cross to the hill and the crucifixion. And there's no record of anything being offered to him 
Except one of the gospel writers records that they offered him a drink before his crucifixion. Interesting little twist there. It was seen or understood to be sort of a, uh, an anesthetic, a, a, a narcotic that would, that would dull the pain. You recall that Jesus refused that. Refused to dull the pain of the experience that he was about to go through. Let those three little words, those simple little words, I am thirsty, remind you that Jesus was 100% human and that he suffered greatly for your sin and for my sin. Interesting that the one who said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. That one had to first experience raging thirst and horrible death so that we might drink of the water of life. Let those words, I am thirsty, remind us of Jesus' humanity. Second observation that strikes me is the way that John records the sequence. Because he wrote, he started our text this way, later, knowing that everything had now been finished. It's interesting, in John's record, what has happened just before are those words that we heard him speak to his mother, to the disciple. And you remember we talked about Jesus' commissioning care. As the oldest son of Mary, it would have been his responsibility, as we learn, to, to make sure that his mother's cared for. And it seems evident from, from the biblical record that Joseph is gone, her husband. And uh, his siblings didn't believe in him. And so Jesus gave the care and the well-being and the, 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 just the future security of his mom to one of his disciples whom he loved and trusted that is what has just happened prior to John's record of Jesus speaking these words. I think it's such a stunning statement later, knowing that everything had now been finished. Later, some time had passed. Jesus was so intent on fulfilling the mission that his father had given him, so committed to seeing it through that that his own needs, even as, as 100% human that he was, hanging on the cross, came last. Seems as if one of the last things that he made sure was done was the care of his dear mother. His expression of being thirsty came only after everything else was completed, is what John says. I would have been whining and moaning and complaining and crying right up to the bitter end. But not Jesus. It's rather remarkable, don't you think? When you consider what he has gone through, he is still other-focused on the cross. 
characteristic of Jesus' life, I guess I shouldn't be surprised by that because he was other-focused all through his life. We have seen many times together that his greatest passion was to do his Father's will, which was characterized so often by loving people and giving himself freely to people. The love of the Father, the mission of the Father was characterized both in the death of His Son but in the life that His Son lived up to the point of His death. Jesus gave Himself for the sake of others all through His life to the glory of His Father. Remember, we've heard Him say, I don't do anything, I don't see anything except that which I've received from the Father. So evidently, all of the loving, caring patient treatment of all kinds of people in his life was what his father wanted him to do. He revealed the heart and the character of God. Other focused to the very end of his life. Now, I want you to just imagine something with me for a couple of minutes this morning. I want you to imagine that you are in that crowd that is standing near the cross. You are a follower of Jesus. You have committed to following him. You've given your life to pursuing him. Up to that point, Jesus has been the focus of your life. There you are. You've been listening to everything that is happening. You've been watching everything that is going on. And suddenly you hear from his lips those words, I am thirsty. As a follower of Jesus... Turn to someone nearby and tell them what you would do. Jesus says, I am thirsty. There hangs the one whom you have committed your life to. What do you do? Okay, so be honest with me. Your first impression is to think that is not a fair question, right? What do you think? Fair question or not? John says you might be risking your life. Absolutely. Mary? Mary? 
Good observation. Roman soldiers may not have let you go near. Anyone else? Monica? How so? Yeah, freaked out. There's a sense of disappointment, surprise, disillusionment, discouragement. Okay. Anything else? Any other comments? Did you think of Laura? Was particularly nice? No. And there's mixed reviews on that from commentators. Laura wants ice water, even though they probably didn't have ice. Donna? Okay. 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 The emotions of the moment, Donna says, I, I wouldn't have been thinking clearly. Okay. Allie? Good. Good. Okay. Sense of, of helplessness, hopelessness. The, you know, water's back in town. How can I get there in time? What can I do? Chad? Probably not. Right. Okay. 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 Dixie, you were going to say something. Dale, comment. I didn't see your hand. Some probably did. Pray for rain. <laughs> yeah. Therese? Okay. Isn't this interesting? I mean, you kind of feel the plight of those who were in the crowd that probably had a lot of these similar kinds of thoughts. What was offered to Jesus was what John calls a wine vinegar. Some other places in Scripture, we get a sense of it was referred to as sour wine. Do you remember Jesus' first miracle in John 2, the wedding of Cana? You know, he, uh, he turned the water into wine. And the wine was superb. And the host of the banquet said, Wow! Most people serve the great wine and then bring out the crappy stuff when it doesn't matter because people are drunk and they don't know the difference. But Jesus did it the opposite way. Well, it was, it was that cheap wine that would have been brought out. It, it, it was good enough. It didn't matter. People's taste and discernment, it was, it was no longer important. You see, from the perspective of most of those standing near the cross, Jesus was, or I, I don't know, most of those, I say many of those, Jesus was a criminal. And what he was given was good enough for a criminal. A jar of sour wine was sitting there, probably what the soldiers would drink. It was good enough for a criminal. In fact, for many of those folks standing there, it was better than he deserved. But, but there were those in the crowd, yourselves, you just put yourselves there a moment ago, 
they, they knew, you know, he's not a criminal. They loved him. You love him. They'd committed to following him all their lives. You've made similar commitments to following Jesus. They had placed their hopes and dreams in him. You placed your hopes and dreams in him. But there is no record in any of the Gospels that any follower of Jesus made an effort to respond to Jesus. For the very reasons, I'm guessing, that you have cited We should probably cut them a little slack, right? After all, crucifixion scene was frightening. Certainly overwhelming. As Monica suggested, disillusioning. A whole lot of doubts in the minds of of those wondering about the wisdom of following Jesus. But my friends, what about those of us who know the rest of the story. We who know that he was no criminal, we who know who he really is, we who have pledged our lives to following him and living for him, we who know that death could not hold him, and are counting on him to hold true to his promise of eternal life for those who believe in him and confess in him. How do we respond today when Jesus is thirsty? How do we respond today when he is hungry? when he sometimes lacks clothing, when he gets thrown into prison, when he gets sick, he does, you know. In Matthew chapter 25, we're going to read these words together. I want you to hear these words, probably familiar to many of us, Hear these words for what they are. They are the words of Jesus. Spoken in the context of the end of the ages. When people are brought together and they are judged by God on the basis of the life that they live. Let's stand together and read from Matthew 25. Here we go. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you look after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, Whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Praise team, why don't you come on up and prepare to lead us as we respond this morning. My friends, we need to hear those words anew. There have been many efforts over the years to explain what Jesus meant by those verses. Frankly, I think what Jesus meant is what he said. We as God's people are called to live the life that Jesus lived in giving himself to those who had needs. And according to Jesus in that text, he has many needs today represented in those who are hurting, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are in prison, those who are sick, those who are lonely. How will you respond to Jesus' request as his follower in your life on a daily basis? Close with this quote from Mother Teresa, who I think said it better than most. Oh, Jesus, she said, grant that even if you are hidden under the unattractive disguise of anger, of crime, or of madness, I may recognize you and say, Jesus, you who suffer, how sweet it is to serve you. Amen.